11. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is God's Word. Thank you, Grace, for reading God's Word for us this morning. Good morning, church. It's good to see each of you. Uh, some of you didn't notice that I shaved my beard off, so I thought I'd show you a photo of what I used to look like. Uh, obviously, this is not me. This is Michelangelo, a famous Italian painter and sculptor. And uh, I, uh, being an art major, did a lot of research on him. I admired him a great deal, but perhaps not his personality. He was famously, or perhaps infamously, temperamental. He eviscerated everyone he worked with or worked for him. He was often hostile, and yet he was brilliant. He was given a contract to paint the Sistine Chapel. He had already completed the entire ceiling, and then he was given an additional commission from the Vatican to paint the entire wall above and behind the altar in the chapel. The commission was for him to portray the final resurrection in all its glory when the faithful saints would be raised to receive their glorious reward. But such was the man that Michelangelo was that instead of painting the final resurrection, he spent four bitter years painting what later be called, was called the, the final judgment. And the only reason I can show you this is because the children have left and also because immediately after exposure to this final glorious work, the church hired another painter equally famous as Michelangelo, to cover all the naughty bits because he painted everyone completely naked. In fact, so great was this an event that the famous painter is no longer famous. He's known as the painter of britches or pants because he covered every bit with robe or some kind of 
covering some kind of pants. And so when it opened, it was met with, met with immediate horror. It was called pornographic. It was said to be more suited for the bars and the public baths than for the holy Catholic Church. In fact, worse is many public figures began to see themselves in the painting, and they were going in the wrong direction. They were horrified to see themselves not destined for glorious reward, but destined perhaps even for hell. In fact, Michelangelo even painted himself into this painting, trying to describe perhaps how bitter an experience it was to work for the church. He painted himself as the flayed skin of the martyr Saint Bartholomew. There he is in all his glory. And then there's this man who didn't need to be covered because apparently he had no naughty bits. And he had this amazing similarity to a famous cardinal who lived in Italy at the time, this look of shock and horror when expecting glory instead got a serpent's bite and two demons dragging him down to hell. Um, this is the theology that I grew up with. It wasn't even fixed by the Reformation, but made worse this hovering sense of impending doom because, Ian, you will make it to heaven, but you might smell like smoke. On the other hand, you might be shocked and mortified. When you get raised and stand before that seat of just, judgment and suddenly realize you, you weren't the guy that everybody thought you were, or worse, you were the guy that everyone always suspected you were. In fact, uh, I remember when I was about 16 attending youth camp. How many of you have been to youth camp? Now you're afraid to raise your hand, right? <laughs> I was at youth camp, and we had a, a particularly passionate evangelist. I have no idea where he was from. I'm assuming south. And, and he was preaching. And, and then on the final night, he said, preaching on the final judgment, he says, so some of you are so smug, and, and I was definitely smug, so assumed he was talking about me, but remember, one day you will be before the seat of judgment, and this great screen will come down from the heavens, and you will be exposed, and everybody will know every bad thought you have. Everyone will know all the satanic music that you have listened to. It will be displayed on the screen. All those evil thoughts will be exposed. That is the theology that raised me. And so in 1976, when I was about to be homeless, I was packing my backpack. And my mom, moms love even rebellious boys. She was watching me as I packed, and she said, Ian, dear, are, are you going? Dear was my middle name, as long as my mom was talking. Ian, dear, are you going to pack your Bible? And of course, in those days, if you're really religious, your Bible was heavy. And I was like, Mom, my Bible's too heavy. I can't take it. And then she reached over and picked this little New Testament Gideon's Bible that I got in school when I was 12. And she said, at least take this. I've written a little scripture in there for you, just for you to remember as you go. And, 
And so I took that little New Testament Bible and I put it in my left pocket and she had marked in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and I didn't look at it until three weeks later when I found myself in the back of a police cruiser, suddenly feeling like I needed a word from God. And so I opened it up, and here's what it says. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This morning, if you were raised like me with this hovering sense of theological doom, then you may get a bit of a jolt because we are returning to our series together as one church, the life of Christ in the core of man. We're starting again in chapter 8 of Romans, the chapter that John Piper has called the most glorious chapter in all of the Bible. In fact, John Piper did a single series just on this chapter, 30 sermons, 3-0, on this one chapter. I'm not John Piper, we're going to try and do it in three, meaning we're going to run through it. And here's the first point. We are celebrating a new condition. Look, first of all, at verse 1, there is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation. Now, you've probably heard me say this before, but English is often difficult if we want to get the exact meaning from the original language, because in the original language, you knew the emphasis of every phrase and every sentence by the word order. In order for it to make sense in English, we've got to rearrange the words. But in the original Greek language, the first word in this first phrase in chapter 8 is not therefore, it is not there, the first word is no. In other words, an entire rereading of this would be no, therefore now is there condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Two things to remember about that. First of all, no condemnation does not mean less condemnation. It doesn't mean we're a little bit better than other people because we're condemned less. It literally means no. There's no condemnation. But the second thing is it's qualified by the second phrase, for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, This is the same author inspired by the same Holy Spirit who just one chapter ago was agonizing that sin is always close at hand. He was despairing that nothing good dwells in my flesh. This same man was writing, I keep on doing the things, the very things I don't want to do and the things I want to do, I don't do. This is the same man who then in his next breath says, therefore... There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because if we are in Christ Jesus, if we are, the law of the sin of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
Now, the tricky thing about understanding what Paul is saying is he has spent about seven chapters talking about the Jewish law. Now he's referring to general law. General law means these laws apply to you no matter where you live on this planet and no matter what you believe. These are general laws that are universal and universally applied. It's applied to Catholics and Baptists to Buddhists and Hindus, to Muslims, these laws all apply to all of us. For example, the law of gravity. The law of gravity, the result of that is we, all of us, no matter where we live in the world, fall down. Norwegians live in the north. They don't fall up. They fall down. And maybe you don't even believe in the law of gravity. It doesn't matter. You don't have to believe in the law of gravity to be subject to the law of gravity because it's a universal law. Believe it or not, you don't believe in it, you will find yourself on the floor and wonder how you got there. Then you'll have to do all these kind of philosophical gymnastics to figure out, whoa, what happened? That's confusing. I tripped and here I am, two broken teeth and a broken arm the law of gravity, the law of sin and death applies to all of us universally. No matter who we are, no matter what we believe or don't believe, it applies to us. Some of you love to eat your prata every single day, so you are gonna die. Now, if you're like my brother, very judgmental over prata, you're maybe a vegan, you're gonna eat very healthy all your life and then you're gonna die. And some of you look at my shape and feel very good about the Zimba, Zumba lessons that you're taking. Some of you are maybe like training for the Olympics, eating healthy, exercising, and after you're all doing that, then, then after that, you're gonna die. I'm sure gonna die. Whether you believe in the law of sin and death, you are going to die. But for those of us who are in Christ, the law of the spirit of life supersedes all laws because he who created everything says so, whether you believe it or not. The law of sin and death is a universal law. For God has done what the law, now he's back speaking of the Jewish law, weakened by what the flesh could not do. Why was the law weakened? Not because the law was weak, but because my flesh could not live up to the standard of the law. So the law could only point to my guilt. It couldn't save me. It couldn't bring me life. No matter how many rules I kept, there was always a rule I discovered that was so easy to break. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in sinful flesh, because Christ was perfect, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in that human flesh, Jesus, see, condemned sin in the law in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do you hear this? Not fulfilled by us but fulfilled in us by the work of Christ. He has done it. So imagine this for just a moment. 
I'm, I'm guessing that every one of us has secrets. You, you, you work hard to keep that secret in the dark. Now, imagine if your secret is so serious that if exposed, you would be in jail right now. And imagine if that was exposed. You were in prison, you cannot make your bail, you're anxious, awaiting news as to when your trial will be, you know you're guilty, you're wondering how to pay enough lawyers to get you out, and suddenly in your cell, there's a clattering, the door opens, and in walks the judge. And he says to you, sitting in all of your anxiety, your court case has been concluded. The verdict is in. Right away, I don't know about you, but I, I'm feeling worse what do you mean the verdict's in? I haven't had a chance to present evidence. I, I haven't had a chance to, to make a plea, to beg for mercy. I've not even made bail. How can the verdict be in? And then the judge says, verdict is not guilty. That would be crazy, right? Unless in Christ, the spirit of life declares it so. Because before we get to that judgment seat, those who are in Christ have been declared not guilty, exonerated, not because of the work we have done, but because the work Christ did on the cross exonerated us, changed our condition. And that's why I keep going back to Harrison's diagram so that we can see clearly from this that the moment he comes to us, justification is immediate. Our, our condition changes immediate. Sanctification is this process of His Spirit of life working in us to make us fit for heaven. When I stand before the mercy seat, when I am judged before all heaven and earth, His work will be on display in me. The heavens will shout glory to God who has shown his mercy. Because in that moment, Christ bore the guilt I deserved and he gave me the righteousness. He gives you the righteousness that he had. That's why scripture says he became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. He condemned our sin in, our, in his flesh, and our condemnation was wiped away. So since we are in Christ, since we are his body, we have been proclaimed innocent. Do you understand how this has impacted Western history? This is why throughout Western history, the main method, preferred method of execution is when a man has been proclaimed guilty his head is separated from his body. When the head is separated, the body dies. Christ is our head. And he has been proclaimed innocence and his body with him. 
There is no way the, the Lord God, the judge, is going to cut off a hand if we are in Christ's body. He has proclaimed the verdict in. Secondly, the apostle reminds us of the futility of living in the flesh because there's some of us who see ourselves as cardinals. We think we know the religious law. We've studied the Bible lots. We're like a library of biblical knowledge, and we've learned to feel a little self-righteousness. This is what the apostle says for those like cardinals and men like I once was, for those living according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Every time you see that word set in these verses, think of the word establish. We build our lives on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit build their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to build on the, mi the mind on the flesh is death, to build your mind in the Spirit is life and peace. So in these verses... The Apostle Paul is reminding those who gather with the church, it's not enough to hang out. We are invited to set our minds on the spirit of life and peace and not constantly, the way the culture encourages us, to set our minds on the things of the flesh. And we need to understand how the Apostle Paul separates the body from the concept of flesh. Because for Paul, the body was simply a vehicle. It was a container meant to be filled with things. Meant by the design of God to be filled with the human soul. Who you really are is not what you're sitting in. What you're sitting is, is the container that God has given you for this brief experience on this planet. And that container is meant to be filled with your soul and commingled with the God who made you. But at the fall, God left the garden. We were left on our own to find our way, and yet all along He had this plan of redemption to bring us all back to Himself. All along he had this plan to not just be the high exalted God, but to be the Emmanuel God who moves into our neighborhood, which is our very body. Paul separated that body from the flesh, which he saw as the cravings of the human mind. So in essence, he created the mind. In, in his view, the mind, there was this constant battle the mind is this battlefield between the cravings of the human flesh, all the things that I want, my personal preferences, and all the things that God wants. His preference is life. His preference is peace. My preference is all the things that satisfy the appetites of my flesh. I want to be important. I want to have influence. I want to be successful and then I will die. So God brings his spirit to be at war. And listen to what he says. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please 
God, why can the flesh not please God? Because the flesh doesn't want to die. The flesh wants to live and to rule. The flesh does not want to be crucified. The flesh wants to live. The flesh wants to be in charge. The flesh wants its personal preferences, all those things that are pleasing to me. You know, we never once, not even one Sunday, sing the music that I like. Well, nobody likes the music I like, not even Sherry. But my personal preference makes me feel like, why don't we sing my songs? And your personal preferences do exactly the same thing. Those are set on the battlefield of the mind that informs us, why doesn't anyone care about you when the flesh only cares about me? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Only when the spirit of life completely conquers Ian's flesh can I have life and peace. That's why our reflection question is, how am I doing? How am I doing in growing in the things of the spirit of life and peace? Or am I spending my nights filled with anxiety, wondering how I'm going to get one step ahead tomorrow? How am I going to promote my preferences in my work group? How am I going to do better in my exams than I'd hoped to do? How are we doing? This is what Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher, said about the battlefield. He says, the flesh is there, striving and warring, vexing and grieving, and will be there until we are taken into heaven. That battle is a battle for growing sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness, so that I will be fully fit to stand before the judgment seat, and he will be declared righteous. And I will hear those words, come on in, my good and faithful servant. That servant's name is not Ian. That servant's name is Jesus, who has done his great work in me on the cross. That servant's name in you is Jesus, who did that great work on the cross for you. And so we have this new life in Christ you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Now, let me stop, because some of you are getting anxious. We have this ongoing debate in the church. How do I know? You've heard it from this platform many times. I know when the Spirit of Christ lives in me, when there's things coming out of me, fruit being exposed in me that I didn't get from my immigrant Scottish parents. You know that the Spirit of Christ is living in you 
when stuff starts naturally flowing out of you that you didn't get from your immigrant parents, when the fruit of his spirit is obvious in me, when love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control is obvious in me, then that points to this glorious spirit of life and peace. And I can be calm as I look to tomorrow. I can have this expectation. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead, that word means dying. Well, you're 62 like me, and you have back pain for no reason. You are reminded every day that you are dying. I'm suspecting some of you young people have forgotten since you've come in here, you're about 42 minutes closer to death than you were when you arrived. Even though in our flesh we are dying, the Spirit gives us life because of His righteousness. I'm fascinated by this uh, painter or engraver named Dore. Uh, he has done amazing uh, biblical illustrations. This one taken from Ezekiel 37, when God invites his prophet to stand over a valley, the prophet looks down and the valley is full of bones. And God asks the prophet, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel was like, you're God, you're asking me. I mean, you should know. And God then says to Ezekiel, speak my words to these bones. You know what that's called? That's called evangelism. When you're trying to get dead bones to live, you share the gospel. And here is the gospel. God said to Ezekiel, tell, tell these bones, be, be covered. And, and they were covered in flesh and sinew and, and, and skin. And then he says in verse 8, And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin covered them but there was no breath in them. Here, here's the temptation of religion. It can lead us to believe that here we are people looking good, religiously, miraculously, God has brought bones connected to bones and put sinew and flesh and miraculously covered us with skin you know what that is with no breath? That is a corpse. And that's why the prophet Isaiah said, the righteousness of man is a stench to God. Because until breath comes in, we're just a bag of bones. And so God said, prophesy again. Speak to the winds and say, be gathered and fill these corpses these skin bags full of bones and flesh. And so he prophesied again, and he commanded them, and the breath went into them, and they lived. I want to say to you, if you, if, if you feel comfortable that you've got like the old-time religion, you were raised in the Baptist faith, good on you. You are a miracle. But until the life of God has come in by his breath, you're just memorizing words. You're still going to die. 
So, this is why this month and next, 12 believers will stand in this grave and they will proclaim that the Spirit of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in Him. This is why we need a grave. They're going to stand in this grave and they'll put the gospel on display. They will be crucified with Christ, be laid down in the grave of this water, and be raised up because just as Scripture says, because the spirit of life is in us, though our flesh is dying, we will be raised up with Christ. That is the beauty of no condemnation. And when they're raised up, they will walk out of this grave soaking wet and live every single day that follows with the settled joy that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. We don't celebrate that we are righteous people. We celebrate that we are repenting people. We come to celebrate that Jesus condemned sin in his flesh so that we may be lent his righteousness and so condemnation passes over us. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, I'd like for you to bow with me and consider these reflection questions. What are, what are the things that consume you? What are the things that most commonly occupy your thoughts? I mean, just take a moment and do an inventory of the things you fret over, the things that you are anxious about. What are the things that are taking up space in your heart that's cluttering your mind? Maybe it's a person who somehow you have allowed to live rent-free in your head whose words of criticism you consistently replay over and over and over. You worry that the things that someone else has said about you will somehow impact your successful trajectory. I wonder if today you would consider doing some replacement if you are right now addicted to your flesh the answer is not to stop the answer is to replace that addiction with whatever is good and pure and holy and life giving think on these things I wonder if you would consider how to be more consumed with the beauty of Christ. 
who caused condemnation to pass over by condemning sin in his own flesh. And maybe whether you were born a Christian or a Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or whatever, maybe something needs to die in you. Some striving and warring, vexing and grieving. Or in the very least, maybe you're here and you realize, I need to turn anew to Him. Turn afresh to the life-filling, grace-giving, peace-abiding spirit of the resurrected Christ. If you're like this pastor on this morning, then you need to do what I did this morning and turn anew to Christ and say, oh God, I am a man unworthy even to stand before your people with your word in my hand. I turn afresh to you today. Keep filling me with the spirit of life and peace and keep crucifying the flesh of that old Ian so that your name might be glorified in me. As you take this moment to prepare to come to the table, I want to invite those who are serving to come and join me here at the front. But if you're here this morning and you realize, boy, I, I, I need to do some turning, I encourage you not to wait. I'm not going to ask you to stand up, show your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come to the altar. But right now where you sit, you sit in the presence of the almighty King of creation, the one who will judge the good and the evil, the one who has sent his only begotten son. So great was his affection for you. This is the day that you can turn afresh to him. If you're here and you're not a believer, you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, let me just encourage you, let these elements pass by. Nothing magical will happen. You take them or don't, it won't make a difference in your life. But for those of us who desire to come repenting today, we celebrate the Passover of condemnation, the Passover of the angel of death. We celebrate the moment at which Christ became sin for us and lent us thereby his righteousness. And we remember he is coming again as the king of glory. As we prepare to take these elements, I'm going to invite Pastor Ollie to lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving for the bread. Let us pray.